This morning's text comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew in a section of the Gospel that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. We remember those, blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers. But after those Beatitudes, Jesus begins to teach his disciples very hard but nuanced lessons about the deeper issues of life and law. And Matthew wants us to understand that just as Moses climbed the mountain in the Old Testament to receive from God the commandments that would lead the people of Israel through the promised land, Jesus climbed the mountain as well and gave to his 12 disciples the law as he understood it, the fulfillment of Moses' law, which in fact went deeper and in a way sort of complicated things. Things were no longer so black and white by the time Jesus offered up his interpretation of that law. Today's text is an example of that, and it comes to you from an interpretation known as the message. You can read it along, but you might not be able to follow exactly. We know this text, so I suggest you just listen. Beginning in the 38th verse of the 5th chapter. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose, Jesus said. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. Your translation may say, become perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Grow up. You're kingdom subjects. That's who you are. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others. The same way God lives toward you. This is the word of the Lord. 
As I shared last week, I'm grateful to our choir for singing spirituals during Black History Month. Thank you for your gift and your joy in offering that to us. <clears throat> Turn the other cheek. If someone asks for your coat, give them your cloak too. Go the extra mile and become perfect as our Heavenly Father is. Talk about setting a bar. Especially this perfect part. Are we supposed to take these words literally? Or is Jesus interpreting them and offering up, like he often does, words of hyperbole? Like, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Or like a treasure buried in the field. Or if your right eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out and throw it away. Read the whole passage of the Beatitudes carefully, and it leaves us feeling as if Jesus' expectations are way beyond reach. So maybe he is just being hyperbolic. You've heard it said, do not murder, he said earlier, and I say to you, anyone who has anger against a neighbor or even an enemy has committed murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but any one who looks at another lustfully has committed adultery. Literally? Or hyperbolic for the sake of getting our attention? In the case of this morning's passage, I think it's both and. Which is, in fact, the whole issue of spiritual maturity. What Jesus is giving his disciples and us who claim to be disciples on some level at least, which is why we're here, I hope, maybe you're just curious. But ultimately, in this life of faith, we have to commit ourselves to discipleship to the discipline of following Christ. And what he's giving for us is this high standard of what that looks like. It's the goal we point to. The goal for what our lives should reflect. And it's not easy. I took our almost five-year-old granddaughter, Brooklyn, after Christmas, the day after Christmas, to the newly appointed park at Avondale. She had been given a new bike by Santa Claus with training wheels and she wanted to ride it. So we went and it was packed. By the way, a shout out to uh, Stacy Mosley Shearer, one of our church members who not only designed the park but also uh, is in charge of bringing the equipment, which is Scandinavian over in many other parks in our in our country, and you can tell how popular it is by any time driving by, it's packed. So we began to ride her new bike with training wheels, and I've had my sort of hand on her shoulder so she doesn't teeter off, and as we're going down one of the little paths, uh, I heard uh, some noise behind me, and I looked back, and two uh, what one might call JDs, that's juvenile delinquent boys, 12 or 13 years old, were on their bikes, 
shooting those cans of string at people when they rode by. And when they came by us, uh, they saw uh, Brooklyn and shot at her. And Brooklyn, of course, just stopped dead still. She was frightened to begin with, but she was also completely bewildered. She looked at me and said, Papa, why are those boys doing that? I don't know. I wanted to say because they're testosterone-driven young males that you cannot trust, and when you get to be their age, you should always remember you cannot. (laughs) But I decided that would make them a little paranoid. So um, I said, I don't know, Brooklyn. Well, it scared me, and it's mean. I said, I know. As we rode around in the little asphalt pathway, she saw them off in the distance, and she'd point them out. There they are, Papa, there they are. After a while, she forgot about them. We went and started swinging on the equipment. And then in about 20 minutes, she looks up and says, Papa, there they are. They're on that, they were on top of that half-moon, half-circular monkey bar apparatus. It's fascinating. They were up on top of it, bullying the kids around them. And so I said, uh, Brooklyn, why don't we go ask those two boys why they did that? No, no, Papa. I'm scared. Okay, well, I'm going to go ask them, and you can walk behind me if you want, or you can stay in your swing, and I'm just going to go ask them why. And so I walked up and motioned them down, and they clambered down about halfway, and I said, my five-year-old granddaughter, Brooklyn, who was right behind me, uh, wants to know why you shot that string stuff at her because it scared her. One of the guys said, I don't know, mister, we were just having fun. But the other guy took it more seriously, and he looked at Brooklyn, and he said, your name's Brooklyn? Yes. Brooklyn, I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to scare you. We were just having fun with everybody. I apologize. And it was a good lesson for Brooklyn and for those boys and also for me. And the lesson was, as I thought about it, that we have to confront the powers of darkness in some way. And Jesus says, you do so never by force, but also you don't hide your head in the sand. You do so so by truth-telling and vulnerability. We were willing to share our vulnerability with those two guys that Brooklyn was scared and I was simply asking them why they were doing it and in some way, at least one of the guys got it. He owned up to it and felt the experience of embarrassment and probably some shame. And I suspect that he might think twice next time before he starts shooting stuff at people trying to ride their bikes on on training wheels. At least I hope so. Brooklyn learned that you should tell the truth in confrontation, but never with anger. I learned not to overpower people, as I tend to do, but to try to be present in a vulnerable way. I simply ask, my granddaughter wants to know why you did that, for it scared her. Jesus understands the power of this in a sort of passive resistance way as the power of the kingdom of God. 
Only that kind of confrontation done without violence changes us, which is why he says, turn the other cheek. In those days, to insult a subordinate, you would slap them with your right hand with the back of your hand, and it would turn their face to the left. And, and if you turn the other cheek, you would turn back this way, which meant if they wanted to hit you again, they would either have to do so with their left hand, which was always the defiled hand, or they would have to hit you with their open palm, which was uh, taboo uh, for purity reasons to do so. It was always a backslap. And if, in fact, they did that, they would embarrass and shame themselves according to the social laws. If someone asks you for their coat, you give them your cloak too, which means now you are completely disrobed, standing in front of them, and completely vulnerable, which means now they have to face the shame of that, of making you that vulnerable, which was also against the social purity laws. That experience for them would reveal to them who they were. Walk the extra mile, that's about the Romans grabbing an a Jewish slave and putting on him or her their backs, backpacks and forcing them to carry their stuff for a mile, but the law said only a mile. If they went two voluntarily, then their supervisors, captains, would punish them. In every case, Jesus is confronting the powers, the dark powers of oppression and power but doing so in a way that was nonviolent, but was also truth-telling. Everything that he writes in this Beatitudes passage that I just read is about this nonviolent resistance. Even the point of becoming perfect. As I said, it actually means growing up. Mature. A process of moving toward maturity the Greek would use. It's teleos, as in goal. The goal for us is that movement toward maturity. Emotional maturity, certainly, and spiritual maturity, certainly, which also happens to be first cousins. This was what Martin Luther King knew in his nonviolent resistance that changed the world. In the early 60s, when he marched in Birmingham, a free right for them to do. Bull Connor, the police chief, set the dogs on them and hosed them down with fire hoses. And the whole world saw this on television, which caused, of course, a deep sense of shame and embarrassment for all of us watching as well as the Birmingham authorities. That scene itself had as much to do with changing the issue of civil rights as any other. Because they did not fight back and they were nonviolently abused and overpowered, it changed the world. Can you think of another example of that? Jesus Christ on the cross. A complete act of nonviolent response that forces those there and us to see in that moment and that experience our own embarrassment and shame for putting him there. 
They kept goading him. If you're the son of God, save yourself. Come down. If you're the son of God, call all the angels forward. Power never changes the world. Only an act of non-violence can do it. Martin Luther King said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So grow up, Jesus tells us. Grow up into this new place. And as hard as this is, it means that God sees more than, more in us than we see in ourselves. As hard as this is, this is such good news that God expects us and coaxes us and equips us to continue the spiritual growing up. God intends for us to achieve something spectacular, and that spectacular is precisely to be who we were created to be by God, to help create a different kind of world by God. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. Not perfectly. But on some days, it happens. Some days the kingdom of God actually breaks in on us and we respond that way. In 1914, it's known as the Christmas Truce, in World War I, the British and the Germans were embedded in their trenches. And as the story goes, the Germans began to sing Christmas carols. And that led to both sides getting out of their trenches and coming together in no man's land, that space between them. Where they sang carols together, they began to trade trinkets and tobacco, stories of their homeland. They actually played football, what we would call soccer. This is not an apocryphal story. Didn't happen everywhere, but in certain parts in 1914. And of course it lasted only a day because when the Colonels and majors and generals found out about it. They threatened to accuse them of treason by death if they did it again. And this war ratcheted up in terms of the numbers of dead. And, and the propaganda ratcheted up too. And the Germans were Huns. And the British were mercenaries. And the propaganda kept feeding it more and more. And there were those in the war who bought into all that, bought into all the propaganda, as there always is in war. But there was also this group. I'm not sure why. Maybe they had decided to grow up some that refused to accept the propaganda and began to think in their experience, you know, when I was, when I was just in that relationship with that German at least for six hours, he didn't seem like a devil to me. And they began to question all the stuff that they had been fed and to question their own experience and humanity. And they began to see that, you know, this dualism between good and bad and black and white and, and enemy and friend doesn't really exist so much, this clean line between all of this becomes blurred in a gray area and they began to see that I'm as much the enemy as they are 
and all of a sudden that clean black and white world dissipated and they grew up. All because they were in relationship with their enemy. Did you hear the one about the Republican and the Democrat who went into a bar? They both went in convinced that they could change and convince the other that they were right. And when they came out, after spending some good time with each other, they had learned something. That it wasn't about being right after all. Such is the word of God. In Christ's name, amen.